I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beerpai people, who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Hi and welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast, where we have collaborative conversations, cross-pollinate and connect, as we span our wings across topics such as feminine wisdom, womb wisdom, herbal plant medicine, natural fertility awareness, postpartum care, sacred sisterhood, sacred motherhood, women's circles and deep connectedness. If you're here, I believe you too are on a journey to reclaim and revitalise ancient feminine wisdom in a modern context. Not only for ourselves now, but for future generations to come. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I have a guest here today that I've been really inspired by and excited to have here and talk to about um, a really kind of holistic and in-depth aspect of postpartum care. So I've got Rachelle Garcia-Saliga from Innate Traditions. Welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here. So innate is that which is natural and inherent. Traditions are those teachings passed down from one generation to the next. Our innate physiological design offers us a map to health and wellness. We thrive when we follow what has been laid out for us. Traditional medicine is stored within our blood memory, within earth, air, water, fire. The more we heal ourselves from the destructive programming we've received, the more access we have to this knowledge. All of Rochelle's work is dedicated to this remembrance. So Rochelle runs a holistic well-woman care practice tending to the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual bodies. And she also runs a bunch of courses and training, which we'll talk about a bit later. But Rochelle, can you just tell us a little bit more about how you came to this work, both as a certified professional midwife, I should say, and a traditional midwife, or having apprenticed as a traditional midwife. And yeah, so a little bit about how you came to this work and also for people to clarify that term, traditional midwife, midwifery. Mm -hmm. When I was, it was when I was 22 that I knew that I wanted to be a midwife. I didn't even know what midwife was. And then I heard the word and I just knew that that's what it was. And so then I was like, well, what is a midwife? Because I feel such a big charge around that. And then I learned what it was. And, and then it was with really within two weeks that I got invited to my first home birth of a woman who was a friend of mine, but she had been a new friend. Um, and she was like the first one out of our group of friends who was having babies, you know? And so I went to her birth and I was like, yep, that's it. Like I just, it was just this clear thing. And so um, at her birth, there had been uh, nurse midwives there. Nurse midwives are trained in allopathic medicine, right? So they still are going through like allopathic medicine school and her midwives were lovely people. Um, but I felt, and my friend also felt after when we talked after her birth, that something still was off, let's say at the birth, like it was still held in more of an allopathic framework, even though it was at home. And and I just knew it's like I wanted to learn midwifery in a way that hadn't been so infiltrated by Western medicine, so affected by Western medicine. And I grew up in LA. I grew up in Southern California and I um, grew up in close proximity to the border with Mexico. And um, I've always felt a deep connection with the land, with the spirit of Mexico. And so I was like, I'm just going to go back to Mexico and I'm going to do midwifery there. And so I did. And my, my intention really was to learn from midwives in a traditional way and to see and feel how midwifery felt um, within that context. So I did that. I mean, I spent most of my 20s apprenticing with midwives. So I worked in birth centers in Mexico. I worked in home births in Mexico. And then just in my trajectory in life, you know, I came back up to the States. I worked with home birth midwives in the United States. And then I worked 
with um, midwives within a clinic setting in the United States. And that was my apprenticeship. I probably worked with like 17 different midwives in that time. I didn't go to a midwifery school. Um, I did a traditional route of study, working with the midwives, apprenticing with the midwives, doing prenatals and going to births and doing postpartum care and everything that's entailed in that. And then I did self-study. Um, so, I mean, I read a lot of books and I learned a lot of things, but it was at my own accord. And at the time, um, the certified professional midwifery route, which is not a licensure in the United States, it's a national certification. But at the time, that route of entry into midwifery was honored. You could apprentice and do things the traditional way, which is apprenticeship and um and go through this process to become a certified professional midwife um you had to you know fulfill certain requirements you know you had to go to x amount of births and you have to have your preceptors sign off for you but your preceptors are simply the midwives you're working under and then when your like clinical requirements were complete you have to sit for a 10-hour exam so i did all those things and i sat for the exam in the third trimester of my pregnancy with my daughter. And I was like, if I don't pass this test, man, I'm not ever trying to do that again because I had to sit on this chair with my legs dangling off of it for like 10 hours and my ankles <laughs> by the end were so swollen. It took them like four days to deflate. Oh, no. So uncomfortable. Um, but I passed and I was like, thank God, because I really won't do that again. And, and so I got, I became a CPM and now the CPM process in the United States is way more controlled, way more regulated. And there is no way like I would being who I am, there's no way I would do that process now because pretty much everything that I did, my entire path into midwifery is no longer um, respected. That route, that traditional apprenticeship route is not respected in that way. You can only apprentice with other midwives who are CPMs. You cannot apprentice with midwives outside of the United States anymore. There's all kinds of rules and stipulations with it. But I maintain the the status of a CPM because I did it and I can maintain it. And so I feel like to work work those things to our benefits within the modern way of life is a good thing. Absolutely. So I do. Yeah, interesting. It's quite different here in Australia. It's it, midwifery is a branch of nursing, basically, to be certified. So that's the, like nurse midwifery in the United States. Okay, so yeah, there's a distinction there, and I don't think there's an apprenticeship model. Although I think there was once when um, like all the nuns worked in in midwifery and things like that, but quite a long time ago. That's I think really there cool. are probably still tradition. I mean, I know traditional midwives in Australia, oh, but yeah, I, my, yes. my sense is that they work way underground because yep. of the rules and regulations yep. in your country. You know? Yeah. It's become more and more restricted, especially in the last mm -hmm. couple of years. So yeah, mm -hmm. the, the traditional midwives and there are some um, indigenous birth workers working mm -hmm. both within the health model and then also within a traditional model. And that's really interesting. Um, all right. So I thought we'd just go a little bit into innate postpartum care, mm -hmm. which has just intrigued me for so long. I just kept going back and looking. So I have social work background, um, retrained as a postpartum doula and, and definitely feel like I'm confident enough to go out in the world as a doula, but just wanted a little bit more in-depth understanding of the physiology, but also how that is connected to our spiritual worlds and how that ties into our emotional states and being. And I often say part of my motivation for becoming a postpartum doula is that the leading cause of maternal death in Australia in the first year is suicide. This is a really serious, urgent issue that I'm going to keep on kind of driving home just in case this is the first time people are listening. If it's your third, you just have to keep bearing with me. Um, but there is, I'm also really inspired by these amazing models of traditional postpartum care that exist and how we can weave that in to a modern context. So innate postpartum care does weave the world's postpartum traditions in with modern science and you use the female body or you look at the female body as a map 
going from the pelvic floor up to the head. Can you share a little bit more about that philosophy that you have somewhat given language to? You haven't created because it's just inherent, but you've given this amazing um, articulate language to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's so much a part of what I do. Um, it's that like as humans, we're oral, right? Like w- with speaking, it's how we transmit and we're oral. Um, oral, like as in we hear, we're, so we're oral and oral creatures. And a friend of mine, an elder, she said, you know, if we don't have the language to describe something, it's almost as if it doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. And so we can have really big feelings about something, but in the modern world, especially with how much, um, how much favor we give to the neocortex, the logical, rational brain, we have to be able to communicate the, the why of something, right? Because in the tearing of our respective and collective um, cultural fabrics, okay, there is no longer a understanding for so many people as to why do I have to rest in the postpartum time? So we can say till we're blue in the face that we really need to rest. But if you can't explain why, it's not going to carry a lot of weight. We have to be able to translate. And that translation to me is the physiology. So, so much of the information we get in the modern world about our bodies, about mothering, about babies is coming from quote unquote experts. But who the hell are these experts? And quite frankly, so many of the experts, it comes from like the expert advice. It's like expert opinion. And I mean, this is kind of like a grosseria. This is like an ugly thing to say. But my dad, like when I was growing up, he would always tell me, you know what? Opinions, they're like assholes and everyone's got one. Yeah, so I grew that. up with that, you know. And so a lot of expert advice is just a lot of opinions, you know. And so to me, what we need to do to stay out of the quote unquote expert advice and get back into, um, into health and wellness is to understand our physiology and our psychology and then be able to translate that. So that's really what innate postpartum care is based on. It's not like it's based upon my opinions or like my expert advice. It's like, what, what does our physiology say? What are all of the world's postpartum traditions based on? And they're based upon our physiology. They're not some like random confluence of information. You know, it's like they're all based upon the uh, physiologic needs of postpartum women and families and based upon the um, psychologic needs of postpartum women and families for the purpose of um, supporting thriving health and life for mothers and families with the understanding that maternal health is foundational to society's health. And so if we're concerned about the health of the future generations, then we have to focus on maternal health because we can't talk about infant mental health. We can't talk about children's health. We can't even talk about adolescent health without addressing maternal health. And and all of the world's postpartum traditions are really rooted in those understandings. And it's like, it's so beautiful to me because it's like, I already know this information, but the more I get into it and the more and the more deep, it's so deep, um, the, the traditional ways of tending to things. It's so exact in terms of what modern science confirms. It's like, it's so beautiful. Mm. So um, innate postpartum care training is based in that. It's based in what are the um, physiologic and psychologic needs to support maternal health, to support humanity's health. And um, there was something that I wanted to say in there about what you were talking about. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you're talking about, I didn't know that in Australia, that the number one cause of the number one reason for maternal death, the first year postpartum is suicide. But I mean, layered into my training, right? So it's not just like the, the translation of the old ways into the new time. It's also about what are our modern adaptations to reality as it is in order to thrive. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because modern reality as it is, is highly dysfunctional. Okay. It is not supportive of mothers. It's not supportive of families 
it's not supportive of life, quite honestly. Okay, so what is the adaptation that we can make as mothers and as families to continue to thrive amidst an environment that is destructive? And I feel like that's the real, um, that's the crux of it. I feel like us being able to thrive at this time is the biggest form of resistance to a system that doesn't honor life. And so it's always an amazing thing to me when I see people thriving amidst a time that's really destructive because that is a freaking art form. That is a form of mastery. And so that's also what we talk about in Nate's training. What are the adaptations? And so when I hear that, when, you, when I hear you telling me about mothers are committing suicide and that's the number one cause of maternal death in the first year postpartum, I start to kind of track that in my mind. Okay. And so then it's like in midwifery, I learned one of the midwives I worked with, she was like, you know, always go to horses before you go to zebras. And what she meant when she was saying that before you get into like really complicated reasoning behind things, start with the most basic. So this is basic to our environment because somewhere else zebra is going to be the basic, right? But horses are more common where I live than zebras are. So the horse is like women have such extreme nutritional deficiencies at this time on the planet. And what I've learned is that nutritional deficiencies are intergenerational. So it's like for how many generations have we been highly um, nutrient deficient? And then we come into pregnancy, which is a resource demanding time. And we're seven generations out in terms of our deficiencies. And then we come out, we grow a human life. And our design is that our body will give everything to the baby. That's nature's design at cost to us because nature is trying to preserve life into the future. And so even basic things like lack of omega-3 fatty acids in the diet, um, can lead into major postpartum depression, right? And so I just came back from Mexico with my family because we have a lot of family there. And we have some family and friends in Mexico City where we were staying for a time. And Mexico City is one of the biggest cities in the world, right? And so I'm talking, I did like a little um, class that my sister-in-law put together. And I'm talking about all these things and I'm like, holy crap. Like there is not even a way in Mexico city to source omega-3 fatty acids, which is foundational to human life. There is no cold water fatty fish. You can get eggs, but the eggs are not pasture raised. It's all factory farmed. You can get meat, but the meat's not pasture raised because it's all factory farmed. You can't get like cod fermented cod liver oil in Mexico city, unless you're really wealthy and you can order it on the internet, which 99% of people aren't. Um, You can maybe get sardines, but the point is it's like, there's not even ways to put into the body that which is foundational for maternal health or foundational for our, our baby's health because our babies grow their brains through siphoning off from our brains, DHA and EPA. Okay when they're growing in our bodies or when we're nursing them. And so if we can't replenish that, then what? Then how do mothers feel, right? So, I mean, even just starting on that baseline, it's like that's already a freaking health crisis right there. That's a recipe for disaster. And then that's not even getting into the other implications of everything else, of lack of support and what is going on to create such profound levels of despair in the postpartum time? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're seeing that what's happening in the postpartum is like a microcosm of what is happening in society. There's a major disconnect. Absolutely. So that ancestral and cultural grief that then needs the healing, which we'll talk about. Um, and then that's just being transposed over onto how we culturally respond to postpartum care. And then, like you said, it's feeding into itself generationally. Yeah, so they can see, it's interesting what you say about um, the omegas, they can see when they do scans on mother's brains that they actually shrink 
or like there's a there's I'm not sure if it's actually just volume or use there's like a shrinkage of the brain by five percent and then over time it builds back up and Mm -hmm. at first there was different philosophies I believe that it was like a rewiring of the mother's brain but now we know that it's just nutritional stores like part of that is that sucking all those good fats Mm -hmm. putting it into the baby and then you've got to have time to catch up which is interesting when you look at traditional Chinese medicine, they say have three years between babies, there's fertility foods, there's fertility diets leading up to even your first pregnancy. And I've interviewed um, Lily Nichols. Um, she wrote a book. Um, she's in, the, in Canada, I think. And she wrote a book called Real Food for Pregnancy. She's a nutritionist. And so she talks all about this stuff mm-hmm. um, as well. So if anyone's interested, they can go back and listen to that as well. But, yeah, you're right, like foundationally just even getting people up to optimum levels and our standards of optimum levels are probably too low and then to continue having children on. And then the studies coming out in epigenetics of how that's carrying on generation to generation. Mm -hmm. It looks like we've got maybe, so say my grandmother, um, if she didn't eat so well, she had some time. She grew up in the depression. But when I talked to her about a diet, it was actually probably quite good. Um, it was quite wholesome. And there was still lots of good fats. But say she went through a famine and my mum was born and she came out okay. As long as I start eating well, we've got a buffer of a generation or two. And then after that, we really are going to be chasing our tail. And that's what we're looking at now and the consequence of health problems and how that leads on to behavior and mental health and things like that are huge yeah like you said we're not even going then into social supports i really like the way that you articulate a lot of things but especially the way you articulate how a mother's nervous system responds to just the physical presence of support Mm -hmm. so safe safety net just a safe container and space Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that before we go into um, ancestral grief and healing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's really based in understanding the autonomic nervous system. Um, and for a long time, the way that the autonomic nervous system has been talked about and understood is that our, our responses to stress is fight or flight <clears throat> or freeze, right? So it's been acknowledged that the parasympathetic and the um why am i blanking right now what's the other part the sympathetic sympathetic and the parasympathetic (laughs) right those have been the two main branches but really in the last 15 years it was stephen porges who came out with the polyvagal theory right and he's like well no there's not actually just two branches there's a third branch and it's the social nervous system and the social nervous system is kind of like our first line of defense, right? So it, when faced with, well, just in life and navigating life, it's like our first line of defense is the social nervous system. So the um, normal activated part of the social nervous system, it's all through the face. It's eye contact. It's listening. Um, it's, it's our facial expressions. Okay, it's the way that the muscles in our face work. It's everything we communicate through our face, essentially, and um, and like that. And in times of stress, the way that the social nervous system works is what often gets called like the tend and tend and befriend response. And so you get together with other people. So like, let's say if you're in a room with a bunch of people and you hear a loud explosion, the first thing you're going to do is kind of come together because there's like this safety in numbers. It's like a normal human response or there's something going on outside. It's like you're going to pull together with the other people in the space and check out what's going on. And, and then, right, if the stress persisted, then we would get into the sympathetic response, which is going to be to fight or flee. Okay. And that's the next level of stress. And then if that, if we, there was still the stress present at hand, then we would drop into a parasympathetic response, which is freeze, which is like feigning death, which is what animals do if they're going to be attacked. It will often look like they're dead, but it's that their body's physiology, they can actually die, but the physiology begins to shut down. 
right? And so on a very basic level, um, the way that we're wired as humans is to be in spaces with each other. It's what helps to regulate our nervous system and keep us out of stress. And when we're out of stress, then all of our physiology can, um, instead of putting its energy towards hypervigilance or the stress and the stress hormone modulation, then our body can put its energy into digestion and our immune system and um, healthy hormonal functioning, you know? And so on a very basic level in the postpartum time, if there's a postpartum mother who's alone, which is the case for so many in the modern world, right? If she has like the quote unquote privilege to stay home with her baby. And I say quote unquote privilege because I know a lot of mothers have to go back to work in the modern world in order to make money, in order to keep life going. But let's say she's able to stay home with her baby. Well, she's often home alone. And automatically by our physiologic design, she is going to be in a stress response because we're not ever designed to just be alone for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. But especially in the postpartum time, which is a highly vulnerable time, um, physiologically and psychologically, because our brains are being reformed and all of our biological systems are recalibrating and being reformed. Um, it's like equivalent to the period of adolescence or the equivalent to the period of early childhood development in the sense that it's a vulnerable time. So automatically for a postpartum mother to be left alone, it's going to send her into a stress response. And so what that means, if there's a postpartum mother who's alone and in this stress response, the energy that should be going into or could be going into her own healing, healing her pelvic floor after birth and um, healing her connective tissue and healing her digestive system, some of that energy is going to be going to her hypervigilance because she's alone with a newborn baby like when in human history would a postpartum mother be alone with her newborn baby never it's absolutely ridiculous right because the thing is that i think that most people forget about in the modern world it's like we can have internet and we have electricity and we can fly on airplanes and all these things but our biology is pretty much the same as it was a thousand years ago so our our animal body still needs the same thing now that it did 1,000 years ago. So sometimes this is being called like an evolutionary mismatch, right? It's like we want to apply these modern ways of life to our biological organisms, and it doesn't work because our design is how it is. Yeah. And so we respect the design and we have health and wellness and we don't. And then we end up in disease and dysfunction. Yeah. And it may never work. Like it, it's probably not the greatest goal to try and get our bodies to catch up to our modern no. culture. <laughs> we need to actually strip back our cultural um, direction and movement to follow, like you say, follow the physiological design, but also follow natural patterns. So that doesn't mean we don't keep advancing with technology. We don't keep advancing with science and medical science when needed, but we're following the patterns of the natural order, basically, which all traditional cultures did. Mm-hmm. And that is huge. Like you said, like you've been working in this area for a long time, but you're still stripping back layers and it's still getting deeper. And for me, I'm, you know, somewhere a little bit later, but not just fresh. And yeah, there's always new layers of understanding in myself, like what that shift looks like and feels like in myself. Mm-hmm. I feel like, oh, okay, I've had that aha moment. I know the current paradigm is not working. I know we need to make a change. I can see the physical steps. But how that feels to actually change your cultural understanding and paradigm is always changing and growing. To mm-hmm. actually change your way of thinking to follow the natural order when you haven't grown up like that mm-hmm. is massive and probably lifelong. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're looking at a lifelong thing. But it's not a goal to try and get our bodies to catch up to this totally. modern construct. And I really love the way you just put it out there that it, it's ridiculous that we're leaving vulnerable mothers and babies at home alone. Then I also see that we've become accustomed through our nervous systems to 
be alone. So if we haven't had people around us in our lives, in the pregnancy or beforehand, that we feel really safe and comfortable with, just to bring them in, which is what happens in the medical world. So you just might have, you might have a few appointments and then you just go in and have your baby and that's, they're your primary caretakers. And I'm not discrediting hospitals. I can probably owe my life to modern medical science. But those people provide such short-term interaction. Mm -hmm. So we need to actually be rewiring our connections and building our village so much earlier Mm -hmm. so that those people coming in in the postpartum are people that you're truly safe and comfortable with. And also as a mother or whoever it is that you feel like you don't want to shut off, you're not going into that parasympathetic where you're so accustomed to being alone that Mm -hmm. you can't even receive. Mm -hmm. So it's actually allowing your nervous system to receive and allowing people around you to feel safe. Um, So it's complex. (laughs) I mean, I think the big thing is, is that, you know, in choosing who would be around us, it's like not choosing with our mind, but choosing with our body, right? So, you know, in our mind, it might be like, oh, well, it's a really great thing for my mother or mother-in-law because that's what our mind says but our body might have a completely different response. Like our body doesn't feel actually good or comfortable with our own mother or with our mother-in-law, right? So the point is, is that there's people around us that we feel good in, good with, you know, with practical things. Like I feel comfortable to be naked and to be sloppy and to be, you know, figuring things out in this big messy time. That's a really practical thing also, but people around you who can see you fall apart and not, um, not judge you in your process for that, right? Because, well, there's a couple things is like from a nervous system perspective, anytime we feel like someone is in a position of authority to us, it, it triggers us into a stress response. So that includes doctors. This is why continuity of care is kind of foundational to our health because nervous system regulation is foundational to our physiologic regulation. And so automatically, if there's someone who's in an authoritative position to us, it's going to trigger us into a stress response. And then what that does to all of our biological systems, that looks like blood pressure rising, that looks like alteration in our homeostasis, and then that becomes pathologized, right? Something's wrong with her because her blood pressure is high. Well, no, her blood pressure is high because she doesn't actually know you and she doesn't like you and she doesn't feel comfortable with you, you know? But if you have people around you that you're comfortable with, it's like a whole different experience for the body. And so there's that piece of it. And, and you know, like on the emotional, mental, spiritual level of things, the postpartum time, even if it's beautiful, even if like our birth was amazing as our felt experience, even actually if we feel fantastic in the postpartum time, the postpartum period is such um, a time of transformation. And in any time of transformation, the way to exalt that transformation, the way to um, the way for it to have positive lasting impact is through having people who can support in a good way, okay? So it's like the difference of if we have these really intense experiences, and let's say a really like, like what, you know, quote unquote negative experience, and we're by ourselves in this experience, and we feel like we're drowning, okay? It feels like despair, and it feels like shit. But we have that same experience, but then we have people around us who who are like, yeah, this is a really intense experience for you, but you're going to be all good. And actually we're going to stay here with you while you go through this to make sure you come out the other side. Um, The entire experience then it's not like then it becomes less painful or less intense, but you're held in a safety net. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what the postpartum experience should be like, because, because then in that safety net, even if the experience isn't beautiful or lovely, it's safe. It's registered as safe in the body. Then the body can facilitate healing. Then there's optimal bonding and attachment between mother and baby. 
So you're not just supporting the mother, then you're actually supporting the infant's health as well. It's this whole like complex, simple, beautiful system, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that idea that there's these times in our life, which, um, are akin to like rite of passage, but they're just major transformations. So like you said, it, it could be, um, the onset of menarche for young women, pregnancy, postpartum, menopause. And if they're honored and they're seen and they're understood, then they become these huge major potentials for growth and transformation and enhancement to the self and therefore the community and therefore the society. Mm -hmm. But if they're not seen, they're not held and they're not supported, then they become these really difficult times, which can be easy to get stuck in a really um, hard frame of mind. So you see puberty issues, you see postpartum depression, and then you see all the issues with menopause. And I'm talking about the female spectrum there, and then mm-hmm. you can apply that to anything. So if we can recognize these special windows, and then there's other times of unseen trauma or seen trauma that come up and need that space too, which sort of ties into uh, the collective trauma of um, ancestral grief and then the healing that's needed that you talk about. And I find this fascinating from lots of different aspects. Obviously, we need to not only address what's going on for the individual, we need to look at how we can create cultural change. This needs to be a shift in our consciousness. Like you said, people need to understand the whys. It's so simple yet so complex to unwind and untangle this ball of string that we've created to create something that's, that works and is efficient. Um, and I, I'm interested from my own sense of being having mostly European ancestry. I'm not sure completely, but a lot of Irish, Scottish that I know of and one lineage. Um, and then there's a few other areas, but I, I don't know. There's a disconnect there. Uh, I'm connected to my grandmother and I hear stories, but culturally there's a bit of a disconnect. And then so for me to try and reweave that and understand who I am in the context, then within Australia, I'm here on Indigenous land and there's collective Indigenous healing going on with massive cultural disconnect that happened, but then revitalised, amazing revitalization also. So, yeah, I really am fascinated and in awe of the way you also bring this topic to the fore and lay it out and say, let's look at it and heal it. And again, give it a language, which I really believe is one of your, your superpowers. <laughs> so, oh, and also you have a, a seminar coming up, a webinar coming up mm-hmm. around this. So can you give us the whole, <laughs> the whole, totally. the whole picture? <laughs> So the webinar coming up is April 14th and it's on ancestral grief and um, ancestral healing. Let's see where, where to go from all of that. I mean, I guess, you know, what my, what all of my work is based upon and why I call my work at this point in time, innate traditions is um, I don't actually feel that we can be disconnected from our ancestors or from what we can call um, our traditions because, you know, I, I give this analogy a lot, but it's like just in the same way we can't actually be disconnected from the earth. Like we can feel disconnected from the earth. And if we're living in urban environments, we can feel more disconnected from the earth. But like we, we exist because of the earth right? Like we can't actually be disconnected from the earth. And I feel that same analogy in regards to our ancestors. Like we may feel disconnected. We may have these thoughts of disconnection or separation or like we don't have something, but how can we be disconnected from something that we're made out of? Um, And so the way that I look at it, and I look at this really because this is how my elders taught me this, is that your ancestors, our ancestors are alive inside of us and nothing that you're doing, nothing that I'm doing <clears throat> is some random accident. It's not some like random confluence of events and we're just doing these random movements in life. It's like 
we are here because of the people who came behind us. Like we are our ancestors. We are the prayer embodied of our ancestors. And the way that my adopted dad, I mean, I have my biological family who raised me. And then in my early twenties, I was um, adopted through a spiritual adoption. And the way that my adopted dad would talk about it. he was like, you know, if you find yourself at this time, <clears throat> like in, um, in a ceremonial way, in a way of prayer, you know, in midwifery, in this work that is more traditional in nature, <clears throat> you're in this because someone in your line had to pray it like this in the past. So you are living out something that someone already prayed for you, you know, and, and that's how I think about it. And so how I think about it is that we've all, we've all, like, unless we're, we've lived completely disconnected from modern reality, you know, in our indigenous ways of life, removed from the influence of the modern world, we've all been indoctrinated with a whole bunch of crap, okay? And the crap is, is what we're taught through school, what we're taught through society at large, and it's largely about not trusting ourselves, not trusting our intuition, not trusting um, our inner authority, okay? And, and, but you should trust everything outside of yourself, right? You should trust the educational system and you should trust the church and you should trust the doctors and you should trust the state and everything outside of you because they're in an authoritative position and they know. So it's like through, through the centuries, there's been this um, giving our power away and often by force, obviously, right? Because of colonization and the inquisitions and like that, it's been a really brutal, destructive force. And, but what I, where I feel like we're at collectively at this time is in a time of reclaiming this um, authority as in, well, how do I actually feel? And is my body really like what, um, the doctors say, or like what the church says about my body, how do I feel in my sexuality? What is my relationship with birth? And as we begin to question these things, we begin to form new relationships. And I feel that the more we're able to peel back um, what we've been taught to believe versus what we actually believe, then this is coming into contact with our ancestral wisdom that is ancestral healing because the grief is in what has been lost or what has been destroyed through time through this kind of programming through the impacts of colonization through the destructive movements of the inquisitions there's grief over there for that disconnection from our original ways our indigenous ways of life but when we can peel back the lies and we get more and more in contact with what we actually believe in, what truth we can actually stand in, um, and then we go about that manifestation of our work on this planet, that to me is our ancestral wisdom. And that is an ancestral healing because we're discovering our purpose and then living out our purpose on this earth. Um, and, and that to me is the essence, the foundation of any indigenous way of life is to remember for what purpose did you come to this earth and then have the courage to fulfill your purpose. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really potent. And just hearing those words, even though they're all thoughts that I've thought about and conversations I've had, just hearing them and, and continuing to feel what that feels like feels so healing in itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm just so thankful that you amongst other people are bringing this conversation out mm -hmm. more and more, bring it into your teachings, but <clears throat> really bringing it out into the world because it's felt like a hard conversation to have mm -hmm. for a lot of people, whether they have come from um, a culture where there's been recent colonization and they're still in we're all in the aftermath, but they're still in the recent aftermath of what that feels like and looks like. And that can be a hard conversation to have. And then for people that have a longer history, like myself, I've, I've always been fascinated. Like honestly, since I was 10, I wrote <laughs> a public speaking speech at my school about witches and got up and like 
got really passionate about how they killed 9 billion women. I'm sure my teachers thought like I was a lunatic or my mum wrote the speech or something, which she did. That's awesome. It's been this fire. So I really do, I am akin to that thing of your living out what your ancestors prayed. I do really feel that there's something that can be, when you strip it back and you allow that to come up, mm-hmm. you allow your ancestors to live through you. And if we can all do that mutually and respectfully while honouring everyone's, where they're at in their healing of that, mm-hmm. um, it's really powerful. I am so excited to study with you, Rochelle. So oh. for people listening, I, um, I was on the fence, I was on the fence. I was like, Shelley, you've done enough study. Just get out there and assimilate and come back and do more study late, later. But then um, I just all of a sudden had this epiphany that I just had to do it. <laughs> And I signed up. And the more I read what you're putting out there and listen to you, I'm just so excited. Um, So anyone out there that's a birth worker um, and is really into developing a more deeper, holistic understanding of what that means culturally within the community because you also, within your training, you look at um, a woman's physiology in the postpartum time but also community education. So this Mm. is really, you can't just, a lot of women are waking up to this. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) This is like hell when I'm left at home with a little baby, but what am I going to do? So we need to be educating everyone to why and how to become Mm. that safe container. So for anyone out there or anyone who's listening about the ancestral grief and cultural disconnect and the healing who's interested, they can sign up to your webinar which is April 14th, where you are. I should have said you're in New Mexico. Right. That's Mountain Standard Time, which will be equivalent in Australia to um, whether that's Western or Eastern time to April 15th, which is Monday. So I will get one. It's going to be recorded. So if people um, sign up, because it might be like some really weird time for you all in Australia, (laughs) but if people sign up, then we'll send out a recording and the recording will be there for 72 hours. Oh, wonderful. Great. And I'll put the links up to that. And I just want to add to that, like, so the class, the way that I, that for innate postpartum care for the certification training, the way that I designed it is for birth workers, but it's also for all healthcare folks. And so in the United States, I have um, continuing education units for mental health professionals nationwide. Because for me, like where I feel supercharged to get this information is with the social workers, is with the marriage family therapists, is with the licensed professional counselors. Because I want this information to go to those who are doing quote unquote therapy with postpartum mothers and families. Because I feel like we can't ethically be doing therapy with postpartum mothers and families without having a baseline of of physiology because then we don't have a baseline for what's normal right so what i talk about is that the physiology gives us a baseline of what's normal so then we stop pathologizing what's normal and then we also stop normalizing that which is not normal right so it's like the both and and so it might be that you know, someone's a social worker and you're not going to be the one as a social worker to do intravaginal work on someone, but you can then be able to resource them and refer them, right? Because we can't separate the mind and the body. So if a woman has, um, you know, urinary or fecal incontinence, she's peeing or pooping in her pants after birth, she's going to feel depressed. So her going to talk about her depression or her getting put on an antidepressant medication is not going to resolve her fecal incontinence, right? But to be able to be like, you can see this person and that's totally, um, we can totally resolve that and that can be healed and tended to. That's like revolutionary in the life of someone who has constant um, discomfort because of what's happening in their pelvis, right? And so that's really like my target audience in the United States. I'm like really big on that. So it is, it's for birth workers. And I also in the United States can offer continuing education units for midwives, um, but for nationwide for all mental health professionals. Fantastic. Yeah. I am so glad you said that for a couple of reasons. Um, Normalizing what's not normal. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, I think this is like huge kind of foundational central message is that if you are depressed, if you're experiencing anxiety postpartum, it's probably normal. There's some people that probably have a chemical imbalance and could go into the in-depth side of how that might be normal and is a side effect of a long history of whatever. But if it's something that's just come up in the postpartum or you're having these physical complaints, it whether it be pelvic or I've got really bad diastasis recti and, you know, there's so many things that can happen. It is normal to feel sad. It's normal to feel depressed. It's even normal to feel angry and pissed off about how your birth may have went. Maybe you had a great birth and that's fantastic, but there's lots of people who are not happy, even if it looked great on the outside. Um, so first of all, it's normal to feel this way and people don't get told that. They go to the GP or to a mental health professional or whoever and, yeah, it's just treated as the pathology. Mm -hmm. So I love that you're working with social workers. I have a social work background, worked in awesome. women's shelters primarily and youth shelters and I've also been thinking about this um, within my small community especially. It's quite... Um, it's a poorer area within Australia. Like it's a lower socioeconomic. I hate that term, but it is. There's a lot of social workers that work here and I mm -hmm. know a lot of them and I've been thinking, oh my goodness, I really need to be sharing this with them mm -hmm. because they're front and central line, family and children's services, um, people in the women's shelters, people working with young mums who are struggling. Mm -hmm. These people are there and they have such, um, a, could have such a huge profound influence at a really important time totally. um, and they're front line so mm. I love that you're doing that so I will share this with a few you've made me think I should share this training with yeah, it'd be awesome people. for you to just to have someone in your local community like if you were able to do the class with them you yeah. know and then like be on the same page and then be able to kind of be a force together because it's still the information even though it's totally based in science is still so contrary to so much of what's going on in social services you know yeah so to have someone to be able to like um do that with would be really awesome yeah mm -hmm. and i also found as a, a part of the reason i didn't go back was i found um i, I really made a huge effort to keep my heart and my compassion open but there is an inherent culture and there's so many amazing social workers out there but there is this desensitization which can either happen really quickly for some people or it can just happen really slowly and incrementally and you find yourself just becoming a little bit out of survival almost yeah and totally. i really passionate about <laughs> reigniting that compassion and that original intent Mm -hmm. for social workers to come back to their heart as well totally because it can be easy just to get lost in the bureaucracy of things and the sadness of things to so to come back to the positivity the positive solutions and the heart and soul totally. i'm also really excited to do this training because it is going to be an immense personal growth and i knew that but i'm starting to see what areas it's really going to um, have huge impact on. And I'm sure there'll be more surprises and unfolding. And I think any of this work is that people need to be ready to not only gain um, knowledge and skills and understanding to deliver to the community, but they need to be doing simultaneously be doing that inner work. Totally. At the same time. So I'm super excited to strip back and... <laughs> Possibly even, um, you know, in my own births as well, there'll be a lot there and then, and my own cultural constructs, but to give it language too. So I have knowing and I'm pretty, I like to talk <laughs> for anyone that knows me and I'm fairly articulate sometimes depending on how much sleep I got, <laughs> but also I have lots of inspirations in my life. Some of them are my close friends nearby and some I've reached out through the internet and and there's people I've just discovered you recently. Um, I recently discovered Maga Mama's Love Her podcast. And there's a few other people that have helped me really give this a language. Julia Jones, Newborn Mothers, who I did the postpartum training with. So I really encourage other people that are out there that just have this knowing inside them that we've talked about. It's there. And if you're having trouble finding the language or finding how to bring this into like a holistic understanding, 
reach out and find people to gain inspiration from that have been maybe working in that area and thinking about it for quite a while. Um, all right. I think that we've covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Rochelle. I know you've recently returned home from a trip away with your family. Yeah. To Mexico. If you've got a little bit of time, can you tell us a little bit about um, your learnings through, so your partner's Mexican, is that right, your Mm -hmm. husband? Mm -hmm. And the Mexican postpartum traditions there, are are they still strongly practiced? Does it depend on whether people are rural or urban? Is it slipping away? It depends all over. And um, when I was apprenticing with midwives in Mexico, I mean, women would, so all the midwives I worked with in Mexico would have birth houses next to their houses. It wasn't like they were going out to birth. And Mm -hmm. I feel like in that way, midwifery was so much more sustainable for the midwives themselves because they didn't actually have to leave their own families for days at a time to tend to women, right? So they would have their home and them and their children, their husband would live in the home. And then there was like a little birth house next to their house. So families would come there, right? So families would come there and give birth and then they would go home. And, and when I was working not in the birth center in Mexico, but with these home birth midwives, everyone would go home and have postpartum care in their own home. It's not like some big thought out ordeal, but it's like, obviously the mom is not going to be cooking because the mother-in-law would be cooking. You know what I mean? And, and most, you know, grandmother age people know that of course you're going to give the young mom who just births an herbal bath at home, you know? Um, But those movements, those gestures, like of the quarantena of that postpartum period were just taken care of by the family. And so usually then mothers who gave birth then would come back at some point in time, you know, within that six week period. And the midwife might do like a uterine massage or the midwife might do a reversal closing. Um, But they were these small gestures because the families were doing what needed to be done to take care of the mom who births, you know? So it wasn't like I had some big formal training experience of postpartum care in Mexico. It's really at least where I was, it was really family oriented. So families would go home and take care of themselves at home. Um, And it just depends, you know, in some places in Mexico, even in rural areas, you know, now it's probably been about 20 years. When I was there, maybe 15 years ago in Mexico, the social security hospitals are called came into being. And what that did was it started offering free services to people and so you can say on one level, oh, that's fantastic, free, free health care, um, including free um, prenatal care and free birth care. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. But no, not really fantastic because it was actually a direct attack on the traditional midwives because then people were like, oh, wow, I can go birth for free. Why, you know, why would we pay the midwife if I can go birth for free? And then all the propaganda of it's so much safer to have your baby in the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And so some of the midwives who I went to learn with in Mexico hardly attended births anymore because even in their small villages, the women of the birthing generation were going to the social security hospitals to give birth, right? So I would say that my experience being in Mexico is that postpartum care is family oriented, right? Um, Less than being midwifery oriented, it was family oriented, you know, that's not true all over the place. I've had friends who have worked with midwives in Mexico and those midwives do really huge, elaborate postpartum care. But the midwives I worked with, it was not so much a thing because the families are, are taking care of all of those things at home, you know? So There's a cultural responsibility there. That's just yeah. inherent. It's just there. Totally. And so the family has that cultural responsibility equally as much as anyone else or more so that's just yeah yeah okay interesting i love that there's um a birth house next to the midwives way more (laughs) sustainable yeah absolutely yeah Yeah, then you can sleep in your own bed if a labor is long you know it's like you don't need to say bye to your kids for four days and you can still eat your food and 
Absolutely. <clears throat> I could do midwifery like that. I can't do midwifery how it is in the States personally. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the reason I haven't gone into being a birth door, although I'd love to down the track is I just, I can't leave my children for that long at this point in time. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share? No, that feels complete. Yeah. People can sign up for the free class on my website under events. And I'm always happy to answer people's email questions. Thank you so much, Rochelle. Inspiring as always. And I look forward to that webinar and getting into the training, which starts in May. Mm -hmm. Starts May through to October. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If there was something there for you, please head on over to the pollinationmamas.com webpage, sign up for latest podcasts, nourishing recipes, blogs, and much more. Head on over to Anchor FM at Pollination Mamas and sign up for the podcast there, or to Facebook and Instagram and say hello. But importantly, share widely with anyone you may know who would gain something from this. Thank you.